invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled, humbled to be numbered among those who have experienced the joy of the saving work of Christ. Lord, we are nothing but sinners who have been showered with your extraordinary mercy and kindness, and we delight this morning to be your people, and it is a delight for us to gather uh, specifically, Lord, to gather around your word. And so we pray that as we, we join this morning underneath uh, this wonderful book that you have given us, Lord, that our hearts would be filled with truth, that we would grow, that your people would be edified. Lord, that unbelievers who, who are among us would see the beauty of the substitutionary death of Christ and accept that Christ is the full satisfaction for your wrath. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear these wonderful truths, that we each would be comforted, knowing that you have promised to us to redeem us, to bless us, and to bring us finally into glory. And it's for that we long, Lord. Thank you again for this opportunity to hear from you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the year 1562, Elector Frederick III ordered the preparation of a new catechism, uh, specifically for his territory. And Frederick had previously been devoted to the Roman Catholic Church, but had recently embraced the theology of the Protestant Reformation. In an effort to unify his people, Frederick commissioned a group of pastors and professors to prepare a new catechism to be used as a tool uh, to teach children the Bible and also to be a guide for local pastors. And this catechism would quickly become one of the widest circulated books in the world to this present day. Like the Westminster Catechism, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, that's what this catechism would be called, soon became its most well-known feature. Now, you'll remember the first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism begins like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's a great question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Notice the question is not what is one of your comforts or what is a comfort in your life and in your death, but what is your only comfort in life and death? I wonder how you would answer that question this morning. Well, listen to how these brothers in Heidelberg, Germany, over 450 years ago, answered it. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. What a statement. What a statement. It is a rich statement, isn't it? But why is it so rich? That was a lot of truth in, a, in that one paragraph. Um, but it's rich. This, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is so rich because it's brimming full with promises of God. Unchanging promises that God has made to His people. Every line that we just read, including also in, in our Romans 8 reading, that we read together. Every line is underwritten by the unchanging devotion and care that God has for His precious people. And that reality ought to bring such a sweet comfort to God's people that it can rightly be said to be our only comfort. And that's true with the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's also true with Isaiah 40, 1-8. And what I want to show you this morning from Isaiah 41 to 8 is that the found, at the foundational level, the believer's only comfort in life and in death is the promise of God. So the believer's only comfort in life is the promise of God. And, and that is what undergirds the Heidelberg Catechism and it's what undergirds everything that we find precious in the Christian life. So please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 40, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. Now that is another rich passage. 
But what we're going to do this morning, we're parachuting in to the middle of Isaiah. So we have to get our bearings contextually. We have to figure out what's going on. So you'll remember that Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Now Isaiah served from 740 to 686 BC. Now let me stop right there. I hope that you're not scared by dates. And if you are, we're going to quickly move on. So don't jump ship by these dates. But Isaiah was a prophet who served from the year 740 to 680 B.C. Now that's over 50 years of ministry. 50 years uh, that Isaiah proclaimed the word of God over and against the rising tide of apostasy, idolatry, and sin in the nations of Israel and Judah. Now you remember that Isaiah was called in perhaps the most memorable call in all of Scripture, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And God comes to him, or Isaiah sees God, and he falls on his face in humiliation. And God comes to him and provides an atonement and tells Isaiah to stand up. And then, immediately afterward, Isaiah hears the voice of God saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah, recently humbled and seeing the king of all the earth on his throne, said, I'll go. Here am I. Send me. And then the next scene is where God responds to Isaiah by telling him his mission. And it's this. You will spend your whole life Preaching to a people who will not listen to you. A people that would reject God's message and ultimately reject anyone who proclaimed it with integrity. And tradition states that Isaiah lost his life underneath the reign of Manasseh, king of Judah, in the 680s. And he was sawn in two for preaching the word and for calling the nation to repentance. But notice, if well, you're not there, but if you look at Isaiah 6 and verse 11, God gives Isaiah a sort of timeline for his ministry. And here's what it is. He says, go preach to these people until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, and houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. So Isaiah was going to be a means of God bringing judgment on the land, but Isaiah would preach, and he would preach faithfully, but the people would not listen. God's message was essentially, go and preach, Isaiah. Preach repentance. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time that the people will reject it. And what's more, because of their incessant idolatry and apostasy and rampant sin, I will give them into the hands of their enemy. And you know the history that in 722 B.C., Assyria came and defeated the, people, the nation of Israel and carried them into captivity. And then shortly after, Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And it is at this point that all hope for the people of Israel and Judah was lost. When their city was destroyed... Their sons and daughters are taken into captivity. The temple that represented 
the presence of God among his people is leveled, they lost hope. And Jeremiah, the prophet, was alive during the, the raising of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he wrote the book of Lamentations, uh, essentially capturing his grief over what he had experienced. And I want to read a few verses to you from chapter 1. This is just setting the scene for Isaiah's prophecy in, in chapter 40. Listen to, to Jeremiah's mourning here. Jer- Lamentations 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all of her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations and she has found no rest. She's in distress. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper over her, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 9, she has no comforter. And Isaiah, or Jeremiah says, the yoke of my transgressions is bound. By his hand they are knit together. They have come upon my neck, and he has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. For these things I weep, says Jeremiah. My eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate and the enemy has prevailed. And then verse 17, Zion, that's Jerusalem, stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. That is a tragic scene. The people feel that God has abandoned them and they have lost hope. And and by all appearances, that is the case. So here's the question. What is God going to do? What will God say to these rebellious, suffering people? That's what you deserve. You did this to yourself. Well, in verse 1 of Isaiah 40, we're brought into the hidden counsel of God. And we get to peek into His heart, as it were, and see what God delights to do with rebellious sinners who repent and trust in Him. Listen to what He says. Verse 1. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Now there is a world of comfort in that verse. Comfort here is a plural imperative. Meaning that God is speaking to a number of different people and He's calling them to go out and proclaim comfort to this depressed, hopeless people. And so what we have here is a sort of commissioning of prophets. Somewhere down in the future where God will commission these prophets to go proclaim to the captives of Israel the message of comfort. He's giving them this message 
so that these dear, precious people would be comforted. Now, this is remarkable for several reasons, especially in light of of the fact that the people were clearly worried that God had totally forsaken them. Remember, they think that God is done with them because of their sin. And their thought is expressed in Isaiah 40. If you look down at verse 27, they say this, My way is hidden from the Lord. My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notion of my God. That is to say, God does not see what's happening to me. He's blind to my suffering, and the injustices that I have experienced are not being dealt with rightly. The idea is that God has completely forgotten them. He's not aware of their plight. Isn't that a common thought when life is hard? Where is God? God has abandoned me. Um, The justice due me is escaping. Well, it's into this depressed, dark, hopeless thinking that God commands the prophets to say, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So despite their incessant defiance of God and their failure and their unfaithfulness, God still calls them His people. Comfort, comfort those people. No. Comfort, comfort my people. These are my precious people. The wonder, really, it it is a wonder in the Old Testament of how God so patiently bore with the people of Israel. You've experienced, experienced this wonder when you're reading through your Bible reading plan, and over and over again, you see the, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, just totally scorn God, turn their back on God, forget His promises. We see this in the, the New Testament with the disciples. God, or Jesus uh, produces um, food for, for a multitude, and then just, I mean, in the next breath, they're, they're going over the lake, and the disciples say, what are we going to eat? You know, it's, it's baffling. But what we see throughout Scripture is that God is just as He says. Patient and merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And He bears with the infirmities of His people. If you doubt that, read Psalm 103. A sweet reminder of that. But here we are in Isaiah 40 and God wants to comfort these people. So what's he going to do? How's he going to bring them comfort? Well, he commissions the prophets to go to them. And in verses 2 to 8, we see what they are to do. They are to proclaim to these suffering people the precious and unchanging promise of God. And it is the promise of God that is to bring them ultimate comfort. And that is that same promise to you and me that is to bring us ultimate comfort. When life is hard, it seems like God has forgotten us. Things are not going how we planned. Where will you get your hope from? Well, God here, as the great comforter, tells us you ought to derive your comfort, your only comfort in life, 
from the precious promises of God. And so God gives them three specific promises in Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 to 8. Three promises that are aimed to bring them comfort in life and in death. And let me give them to you and we'll walk through them one by one. First, verses 1 to 2, the promise of a certain salvation. Second, verses 3 to 5, the promise, promise of a cosmic king. And then verses 6 to 8, the promise of a changeless word. And the first promise that God references here is the promise of a certain salvation. Look at verse 2. God tells these future prophets, remember we're, we're seeing God commission a group of prophets, and He tells them, comfort my people and go and proclaim this. He says, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are, in essence, promises of a future salvation aimed to comfort a suffering people. Now, remember, chapter 40 of Isaiah is a, a, a prophetic text. The people are not in exile yet when Isaiah writes Isaiah chapter 40. Right, so Isaiah at minimum, wrote this 80 years before the people would go into exile. So Isaiah's looking forward uh, to a, a time where the people will go into exile. And actually, chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah is judgment, essentially. Judgment on the people for their sin. And then in chapter 40, and going through verse 66, we begin to see Isaiah's message becomes a message of hope and promise. And actually... Uh, Isaiah 40 to chapter 66 is called the New Testament in the Old because it's so hopeful. And also because it's almost like a hub where all the writers of the New Testament are just drawing on Isaiah 40 to 66 to make their points about the Messiah. It's a sweet section of Scripture. But remember that they're not in captivity yet and God is, is speaking to a future time. And the prophets are called to speak into the future to these, these people who have suffered immensely. And they're not to speak harshly to these suffering people, but tenderly. And the word is literally, speak to their heart. And what are they to speak so tenderly to these suffering people? Well, first, they're to call out to her that her warfare has ended. Now, the word warfare here actually speaks of a type of military service one would enter into in order to pay off a debt. So you'd join the military to help pay off a debt. It's involuntary. That's why some translations call this a hard service. So the idea is that Judah entered into Babylonian captivity because of her own debt, involuntarily. She had sinned. And she was going to bear her sin. But now... The prophet is commissioned to proclaim to Judah that her hard service is over. It's complete. And notice the next line. That her iniquity has been removed and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now the word double here refers to the two halves of something that's folded in half. So you take a piece of paper 
and you fold it in half. And if you're good at that, you should have two equal uh, ends, right? You should have two mirroring equivalent halves. And that's the idea. So, so what he means by this phrase, the double, is that the punishment that the exiles were going to receive was perfectly measured in exactly what their sin demanded. It would be absolutely just. So there would be no room for them to say, our fathers ate sour grapes and now our teeth are set on edge. Right? Um, that's the proverb that, that they were accustomed to saying. And God says to them, no. Every person will be responsible for their own sin and the judgment that you receive will be exactly what you deserve. However, the hope here, in one sense, is that, that the exile would come to an end someday. Right? The measurement for their sin would be, be met. And they themselves would bear it. Now, But remember here, Isaiah is looking forward. The whole trajectory of Isaiah is hope and promise. Now he's saying to them, you will bear the punishment of your sin and you will stay in exile until the measure of your sin is completed. But Isaiah pushes forward and he comes to, in Isaiah 42, he introduces a key figure in God's redemptive plan. We know that as the Messiah, him as the Messiah, Isaiah calls him here the suffering servant, or the servant of God. Isaiah 42 to 53, Isaiah lays out this messianic figure, and he is called the servant of God, and he does it in four songs. These are called the servant songs. And what these songs do is they reveal who the messianic servant would be and what the messianic servant would would accomplish for God's people. And the crowning work of this future Messiah would accomplish what, 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 what this... Let me start that over. The crowning work of what this future Messiah would accomplish is recorded for us in Isaiah 53. Do you know what that is? I hope you do. If not, we're going to read it together. And now this crowning work in Isaiah 53 has a direct correspondence to Isaiah 42 where the people are told they are going to bear the weight of their own sin for their iniquity. Look at Isaiah 53 with me. This is, the, this is what Isaiah is driving to. And he says this, verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the Messiah's servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being 
fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Now, do you see what Isaiah is driving towards? He's looking forward. He's telling Judah in Isaiah 40 that they will certainly bear the weight of their own sin. They will receive the double for their sin. But a day would come and is certainly coming when the suffering servant of God, the Messiah, would step in and bear the iniquities of his people. That is to say, there's coming a day when God's people will no longer bear the iniquity of their own sin, but the servant of God will bear it for them. He will be pierced through for their transgressions. He will be crushed. Why? For their iniquities. Look at verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, this is what they considered of Jesus, that he was cut off out of, the land, out of the land of the living, not understanding that it was for the transgression of his people, to whom the stroke was due. The stroke of judgment was on, aimed at for God's people, but the suffering servant steps in and bears the weight Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him and to put him to grief. In verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now the people of Judah would bear their punishment, and that was just. And they would go into exile for it. That was coming. But the day would come when the Messiah, Jesus, the suffering servant, would enter into the world and take the full punishment for his sinful people. Now, friends, the Messiah is Jesus. We say he's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who lived and died. And he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And on him was lay the iniquity of us all. <laughs> and it's his substitutionary death on our behalf that becomes our ultimate comfort in both life and in death. The promise of a full pardon for our sin. Because Christ bore the punishment in our place. He accomplished this salvation for sinners. And that salvation is full and complete for all who are united to Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, by faith. And that is the call that we place on everyone this morning. Come and see Jesus dying in the place for sinners, so that they don't have to bear the weight of their sin any longer. Friends, there is a full pardon 
for sinners. That's why we're here this morning. If you're here and you don't know what we're singing about, this is it. This is what we are about. Not because we are righteous in ourselves, but because we look to Christ who bore the debt, the punishment for our debt on our behalf. And that's the glory of the substitutionary death of Christ. We are actually so certain that Christ's death for us is fixed and immutable. That we are accustomed to speaking of it in the past tense. Now, Christ died in the past, and He purchased a salvation for us that, in one sense, theologically, is in the future. But it's strange for us when we start thinking about a future salvation, because we are accustomed to say we are saved. I am saved, past or present tense. And the reason that we do that is because we are so certain of the future reality that when God comes, when Christ appears, that we will not receive the wrath we deserve because Jesus has already borne it for us. And so we speak in the past of a reality that is yet to come. When we will see the Lord and we won't hide under the rocks and we won't cower in fear, but we will with boldness embrace the coming Son of Man and sing for joy because He paid our debt and He drank the cup of wrath fully. And we are in good company when we do this. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 29 and 30 spoke of our future glorification as a past tense reality. You'll remember that he said, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. These are all past tense things. And those whom he justified, he also... How, Paul? Glorification has not happened yet. That glorification is when you and me will be done with sin and we will be finally free, conformed to the image of Christ. How, Paul, can you say that Jesus already glorified us? Well, it's because our future glorification is so certain that it's as if it's already happened. And that is the way it is with our future salvation. And so we speak of it as if it's already taken place. And that, friend, is our comfort in life and death. Our future, certain, fixed salvation. So, we turn now to the second promise. God wanted His people to know salvation would come. It's dark, it's gloomy, but I have not forgotten you. It's hard. Don't you think that it's over? Don't you think that I've forgotten you? I can no more forget you than a mother can forget her loving, nursing child. And he wanted them to be comforted with it. Second, God gives the promise of a cosmic king in order to comfort his suffering people. That's in verses 3 to 5. The coming of a cosmic king. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Well, there is perhaps nothing more visibly devastating than the failed leadership of a nation. Amen? And the people of Israel and Judah had been utterly let down by their leadership. Prophet, priest, and king had all completely abandoned God and embraced the gods of other nations. And as Ezekiel would say, the blood of the people was on the hands of the leadership. And the prophet Hosea spoke of this issue and he wrote, The more the people multiplied, the more they sinned against me. And God says, I will change their glory into shame. They, the religious leadership, feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. So it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. It's not as if the people were rebelling and the priests and the leadership were holy. No. What you read in Jeremiah, the prophets, over and over again, it's that it will be like prophet, so with prophets, so with priests. So like people, like priests. Because all of the people and the priests and the leadership and the kings were essentially lumped together in their rebellion against God. There were lone voices who cried out against them, but they would get sawn in two if they talked too loud. Like Isaiah. And so, the leadership would go into captivity with Judah because of their sin. Everyone was guilty. The leadership actually would feed on, Hosea says, the sins of their people, of the people. So they profited and capitalized on the sinning people of Israel and Judah for their own benefit. Rather than calling out iniquity, they benefited from the laxness in the society. However, God would bring an end to this issue. And He promised a coming king to set matters straight. A coming king would come. And that's what we see in verses 3 to 5. So the common practice for a visiting king or dignitary in the ancient Near East was to send emissaries ahead of him. And their job was to prepare the way, to make sure that things were in order so that when he arrived, the proper pomp and circumstance was there to to receive him. And that the king's way would be uh, smooth and comfortable. And in our text, though, the coming dignitary is no ordinary king. Verse 3 says this, Clear the way for who? The Lord. That's all caps. So when we see Lord all caps, that's Yahweh. It's the covenant God. The covenant God is coming. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. There is a lot in that little phrase. But Isaiah, what essentially Isaiah is saying is that in the future... God will actually return to His people. Right now, in the darkness of of exile, it seems like God is gone. But actually, God will come, and when He comes, it will be no ordinary presence that you know. It will be the extraordinary presence of God among His people. 
And so Isaiah says, it won't just need to be the little the ditches and the crooks that will need to be lifted up and filled in and the hills made level, but all the mountains will need to be leveled and the valleys need to be filled in because the cosmic king will come. And when he comes, you'll know he's here. Now, this language should be familiar to us because uh, Matthew and the gospel writers use it speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist. And in John the Baptist, we learn at least that in one sense, these words had to do with the preparation of repentance of God's people to receive the king. Matthew 3, 1-3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, who's in exile in Isaiah 40? Judah. Israel's gone. So Matthew is is here picking directly up from Isaiah 40. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now we know that John the Baptist came preaching repentance in order that the people of God would turn from their sins and be ready to receive the King Jesus. Now, what was not disclosed to Isaiah or to subsequent prophets, including John the Baptist, was the timeline for Jesus' established or consummated kingdom. Jesus came to earth. He came to His people. The way was prepared. And he entered Jerusalem as the king of Israel. You remember they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. But he was rejected and despised by the people, just as Isaiah 53 prophesied. And all this took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Messiah had to suffer and be crucified. His kingdom in that sense, would not be fully consummated at his initial arrival. Isaiah 53 had to come about. He had to bear the sin of his people. And so, in God's inscrutable wisdom, he he wrote the plan of redemption so that the king would come and he would be embraced, but not entirely, and he would be crucified so that Gentiles and sinners like me and you and Israel could join in to the promises of not bearing their own sin, but have full forgiveness and pardon through the suffering work of Christ. That is God's inscrutable plan. Now we know in His first coming, the way was prepared by John the Baptist, and rather than glory, it was marked by shame. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Right? He came in humiliation, but He will return in glory. When Christ returns, it will not be shameful for Him. But He'll return in His glory. And when He does, look back at Isaiah 40, verse 5. When the King comes in His fully consummated return, this is what will happen. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. 
all flesh will see it together. When the king returns, it will be cosmic. And all flesh will see him. And in, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will be established and it will be upheld in total justice and righteousness from that point on and forevermore. It's Isaiah 9, 6-7. The angel Gabriel put it this way when he appeared to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And listen to this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And in Revelation 1, John writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. It will be a day of vindication for the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, it will be a global event. And his kingdom will soon be consummated. And his reign will stretch across the world. And peace will be established. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. And there will be no more cries that injustice has happened. Now how does this bring comfort to God's suffering people. Well, the Babylonians had wreaked havoc on the people of God. You read some of these Psalms, um, and there are some very vivid depictions of what the Babylonians did to God's people. And it seemed as if justice was lost. When you think about church history, you think about the things that have happened to God's people throughout history. It seems as if justice has been lost. If you, if you look right now in your own life, you have been sinned against. I know that. You have been sinned against badly. And you wrestle with how to forgive, how to move forward with, with the ways that I have experienced injustice. That is the conversation that is consuming our nation at the moment. So how does a coming cosmic king bring comfort to us? Well, it brings comfort because the day is coming when he will be vindicated and he will vindicate his people in the world and peace will be established. And there is a day, according to Romans 12, 17 to 21 and 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 8, that all will be set right. And we yearn for that day when justice, true justice is established on the earth but until that period, we continue to live as exiles in that sense, waiting for the king to come and set things straight. We understand that every system will be broken because of no system in this world is it said that perfect justice and peace will be established except one, and that's Christ. And so that's the kingdom we long for. And when the cosmic king comes, he will make everything right. Now, that friends, is a promise to cling to when life is hard. That is how we navigate life in a fallen world. It's a comfort in life and in death. Lastly, God comforts His people 
in the present by the promise of a changeless word. Look at Isaiah 40, verses 5 and following. Actually, in verse 6, sorry. All flesh, a voice says cry, what shall we cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, one of the perpetual tendencies of Israel and Judah both was to find their ultimate comfort in the people around them. That is, they they found security in their political alliances with other nations and often turned against God in order to cement these relationships. And God is constantly calling them to turn from that practice. In Isaiah 30, this is what God says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to take shelter in the shadow of Egypt. In the next chapter, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong. And they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out His hand. And he who helps will stumble. And he who is helped will fall. And all of them will come to an end together. Time and again, Israel, Judah, were let down by these alliances that they made with people. But God would not have them continue this way. He wanted to rid them of trust in the arm of the flesh. Their failed alliances are what led them to Babylonian captivity, to the destruction of Israel. And so in order to convey to the people the chasm between the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of man, God gives us an illustration. A picture. Verse 6. All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Now, the word loveliness or beauty here is the same word that's used to describe God's covenant faithfulness. And it's frequently translated it's frequently translated as faithfulness. And it refers specifically to God's steadfastness to his people. And the, the, the analogy here is a contrast between the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of man. It's a, it's a powerful analogy. In the desert, the rain would fall and germinate the grass seed and it would shoot up quickly, often with a bloom. It would be beautiful. But its shallow roots could not handle the sun's heat and it would quickly wither. God says that is the flesh. A wild flower that shoots up and has a pretty bud. That's God's analogy for the most powerful nation as well. Now what would happen 
is that the people would see this beautiful budding flower of a nation and think, ah, man, they are really something. Let's throw our lot in with these people and they will keep us safe. But God said to them, you are putting your hope in something that is utterly transient and has no power to comfort you or to keep you safe. In fact, when the breath of God blows on it, it is done. The mightiest kingdom, the the wildflower, it's all the same. When God says it's over, it's over. The most powerful, reliable kingdom consists of men whose life and breath are borrowed from the everlasting God. God gives life to creation. And the best of men, the greatest kingdoms, are absolutely dependent upon God for their existence. Why then, why would we ever place our hope and trust and security in man or a nation? Why would we do that? Why would we entrust our lives to a feeble creature? Or as the Puritans would say, a worm. But notice, as the grass withers and flower fades, verse 8, the Word of God stands forever. Through endless ages, while great kingdoms and their leaders rise and fall, philosophies come and go, the Word of God stands fast, immovable, fixed. It's always constant and unchanging. And this friends, is what undergirds all of God's precious promises to us. He will not fail, and therefore His Word will never fail. God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He he spoken, and will He not make it good? God's Word is fixed. All that He has said, all that He has promised to you, to me, will certainly come about just as He said. Why? Because His Word is unchanging. His promise is immutable. There is no shadow or turning in it. And friends, that is the bedrock of our hope. The bedrock of our comfort in life and in death. These precious promises that we cling to and sing about so frequently, that the Heidelberg Catechism captures so well for us to enjoy, all of them find their source on the bedrock of God's solid, faithful, unchanging Word. If God changes... If he gives up on his sinful people, if he turns and restarts, if he does something different, if he would give up on his people, what hope would we have? What comfort could we sinful people have if God is not patient with wicked people like us? But God is fixed and God is faithful and he is firm and he stands immovably determined to bless you. He stands immovably determined to bless you. And all you have to do to see that 
is read this wonderful book. <laughs> I pray that you would know the comfort of God. The comfort of God in Christ. If you don't know that, now is the time. Today is the day. Don't hesitate. Come and enjoy full pardon for sins in Christ. Let's pray.